in uh, kind of the mid 2000s or so, I read a book called uh, Mining the Sky by John S. Lewis about asteroid mining. And it was, and it was, it was fantastic. And it was, uh, it was a real eye opener to me. It really lays out how potentially available and abundant the resources are um, off of Earth once we start to get to asteroids and be able to utilize asteroids. And it really seemed to me like an absolute inevitability that, um, uh, that this is, this is one of the steps in humankind's evolution and uh, journey off of Earth and to be able to make ourselves interplanetary or, or just to be able to uh, really utilize uh, and, and travel around uh, our own solar system and our own little, little area here. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about today's show sponsor, Carta. Carta simplifies how startups manage equity track cap tables and get valuations. Go to carta.com slash syndicate to get 10% off and learn more about how they can help you with managing your complicated cap table and keeping investors happy. So Brian, why space? Where did this obsession come from? Uh, well, I've always been really interested in, in in science and technology, and if you're if you're looking at the the, the best of either of those, and engineering and uh, and the utilization of of the things that we really know, it, it, you really have to. It, science is just a great demonstration for all of those things. It's a great uh, it's a great uh, venue for uh, for the utilization of of what it is we, we can do. And, and the the thing about space is that we, we don't really have a lot of precedence for uh, almost everything we do in space is, is in one way or another brand new and the first time. And first times are always uh, very exciting opportunities for, for innovation and, uh, and, and discovery. And, and if, whether it works or whether it doesn't, you're going to learn an immense amount. And, and space does a failure rate compared to a lot of other, <clears throat> a lot of other industries, whether we're talking about just uh, satellites or, or pulsion, how do we get there in the first place? There's, there's a lot of opportunity for things to go wrong. And as a result, we, we do end up learning a fair bit. But uh, space in particular uh, I think as I was as I was younger, when I when I was younger, I really enjoyed just drawing. Uh, I loved drawing just homes and houses and uh, basically where, where people lived, uh, and, and I enjoyed working on the the extremes of where people lived. So so I would draw a lot of um, you know like tree houses and and um, houses in in caves or under the water. And as I got older, the the extremes just got more extreme to the point where at this point where people live off of Earth is is one of the more interesting topics that uh, I feel like. Possibly apply myself to. And now you definitely are. Deep Space Industries is one of the leaders when it comes to asteroid mining and getting us off planet. How'd that happen? Well, I was, um, uh, I always tried to reach out to different uh, experts and academics in the field, people who were really uh, thought leaders in certain areas, because I wanted the, the images that I created uh, to just be more and more uh, realistic. And I wanted to, I wanted to make sure I understood the, the fundamental concepts of, of what it is we're talking about before I actually started. Started to before I created the images, so that the images themselves could be as useful to the people who really knew what it, what the what I was talking about, and and still useful to the general public. And so, in uh, kind of the mid two thousands or so, I read a book called uh, Mining the Sky by John S. Lewis about asteroid mining, and it was and it was it was fantastic, and it was uh, it was a real eye opener to me. It really lays out how potentially available and abundant the resources are um, off of Earth once we start to get to asteroids and be able to utilize asteroids. And it really seemed to me like an absolute inevitability that um, uh, that this is this is one of the steps in humankind's evolution and uh, journey off of Earth, and to be able to make ourselves interplanetary or or just to be able to uh, really utilize uh, and and travel around uh, our own solar system and our own little little area here. And so I found the, the book was interesting. But one thing I always I've always been very interested in that I, I spend a lot of time looking at magazines, what things look like, the the artist representation of of a moon base or whatever. And when I typed into Google at the time, what asteroid mining was going to look like, there was really not a lot to actually see. I mean, for something that's 
so so obviously inevitable in our future timeline to really have no idea what that um, what that carrot could look like. I felt uh, was was kind of uh, it felt like a, a big big gap. I mean, when you ask when you ask Google a question that doesn't have an answer for you, you, you potentially asked a really good question. And in this day and age, where all the answers of the published world are at your fingertips, if there is an unanswered question, then you've probably asked something pretty unique. And I felt I mean, this is probably something that I could I could spend some time on and try to work out to the best of my abilities and others' abilities and, and, and knowledge and process of what it could actually look like. So what would asteroid mining look like? I figured I could spend a decade on it or three decades on it and still have you know another couple of decades before it actually became relevant to the global conversation. But when it did happen, you know, in 40 years, when asteroid mining starts to become a thing, uh, when someone typed into Google, there'd be all these images now that uh, of mine that uh, people could actually see, oh, this is what it would look like. And I thought, I mean, at some point, these images are going to be useful to someone. So I started reaching out to different different academics who had been studying uh, ways and processes and and trying to figure out how how uh, the process could be scaled and, you know, what could we actually, what could we do? How could we get to something? What could we do when we get there? How could we process? What would be the best targets? And these 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 uh, this this group that I ended up uh, working with, we called ourselves the Asteroid Mining Group, and it was a diverse range of um, uh, skills. Uh, it was it was a very interesting group. We had this this email conversations. Just kept going back and forth, back and forth, and, and just be you know I, I got to, I feel like I was um I was I, I call myself a visual stenographer where you know I would just go through the the, the list of notes and the um, the comments and and I would try to create an image that evoked a certain concept. Uh, how do you how do you grab onto an asteroid? Something that's in uh, has doesn't really have has, has negligible gravity. You can't just land on it. You have to you have to grab onto it in a way that you know if you if you were to dig into it, you're just going to push yourself off. So how do you hold on to it? And if it's a if it's a rubble pile, how do you not squeeze too hard? And so I'd create an image of potentially a gra- or grappling mechanism, one that uh, made animation that showed how you scoop something, and it would create this conversation. And and so even though I'm not uh, you know in in the group, uh, there was a lot of a lot of PhDs in the group, so very 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 smart people and and I, I felt like I was you know if it was, if I was in a in a game I was I was like I was getting buffed by these the intelligence of my surroundings so I got to pump up the, the potential quality and usefulness of my images by having world-class input into its corrections and so this particular group um, the asteroid mining group ended up um, the first time that we all met together was at the International Space Development Conference in um, in Washington DC uh, I believe it was 2012 and we met with um, other very influential uh, thinkers in the in the industry like uh, Rick Tomlinson and David Gump and we at that point decided you know we have we, we've got a lot of really good research here we really think there, there's a lot of potential for what we're doing let's try to let's form a company and let's see if we can do something so that's how uh deep space industries was formed and um and it's been it's been an, an interesting ride uh, ever since then and uh, you know there's it's at the time this was uh this was around the time that um planetary resources had launched as well and it seemed like you know they had a lot of very high profile names uh that were that were backing them and it seemed like there was this potential of high net worth individuals investing in something that was going to, you know, three years to get your uh, return return back. And, and that's what really the industry required. Uh, it, it's not going to be a quick turnaround uh, for asteroid mining. The, the technology has to be built, has to be tested. We have to even just, even once everything's all built, just flying to the asteroid is going to take longer than a lot of uh, initial investors' investment period. So we needed needed kind of a, a real angel of an angel investor. And, and we thought, you know, we had the team and maybe we could find one of these. Ultimately, we didn't find... <laughs> We didn't find a really high net worth individual, and so we had to change how how DSI was going to uh, was going to work its way forward. And and we have been successful in um, working on the the pipeline that will ultimately create the, the the ecosystem. So water water thrusters thrusters that can can use water. We've we've got um, four specifically for cubesats. So very small uh, thrusters. Uh, and and you know they're they're obviously filling a very
very useful uh, niche in the market. But it's it's a you know it's a it's a long it's a long run, and uh, you know you, you keep your fingers crossed that it's a uh, it's something that we know we know it is eventually going to happen. The resources are out there; they're not getting any uh, further away than they were ten years ago or twenty years ago. The technology to get to them is only going to get more uh, prevalent and established. So it, if it was an inevitability ten years ago, it's even more so now, uh, regardless of, of who gets there. It is going to happen, but it's uh, it is it, it's a lot longer of a road than we probably thought up front. Amen. So it's obvious for for most that asteroid mining is important. It's essentially the chicken and the egg problem of how do we make it economically feasible to get to space when currently there's no one driving there? How do we make them start bringing those rides? Is that kind of the the genesis for why you thought asteroid mining would be so valuable and important? Uh, yeah, it's um, it, it is. It's very much a, a, a chicken and egg. Where, especially if you're if you're talking to an investor, you want to be able to say, you know, we, we can let's say we can create a, a hundred tons of of water or or um, produce refine a hundred tons of water. Then you have to talk about what that what the market is. And, and right now, the market is is essentially zero because if you look at um, how much water has been sold in orbit in the last year, um, it's zero. And so you really need. It, it to exist. It, it's like if you're uh, building a, a railroad, uh, trains that go, go across the continent and, and out in the middle of uh, you know, a specific area, you're thinking about setting up a lumber yard and, and it's, you know, it's a great area people are going to go to, but no lumber has ever been sold there. So potentially the, the market is zero. But as soon as you set it up, all of a sudden you can sell the lumber. People are building their homes and stores and stops and, and, uh, and, and mines and, and other camps. And so it, it's hard to establish what the potential market is when the market doesn't exist yet, and you you kind of have to have a bit of that idea before you before you can ultimately get the investment that is that is required. But the the usefulness of ultimately having that quote unquote lumberyard um, is is uh, I mean it, it changes everything. It being able to use uh, regardless of even how much the cost of bringing things into orbit comes down, the value of having things already there just changes that much more. And even people would say if the if the cost of launching things come down enough, then we could always just bring things with us. But right now, one of the biggest costs of something like asteroid mining and utilizing resources in space is the launch cost itself. So as launch costs come down, even the ability to refine these resources in space comes down. One of your biggest hurdles of getting equipment and massive equipment and uh, to these places is launch costs. So as they come down, so does the ability to and, and cost to actually produce these whatever it is you need the materials and you now obviously the water is the low hanging fruit it's uh, it's going to be you know extremely versatile and useful and we can find lots of it and it's not that difficult to get that out of an asteroid uh, and then from there obviously there's the metals are going to be incredibly useful and, and valuable in 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 orbit or or not even in orbit just in space the numbers i've heard cited are you could find an asteroid with about a trillion dollars in net value if you were to bring that back to earth is that close to accurate and then for the water that that's primarily the importance being then you have fuel then you have fuel cells then suddenly you have in essence uh a network of refueling stations. If you drive your car around and there's no gas stations, your car is not very valuable. But quickly, once you have those recharge stations or fuel up stations, suddenly it becomes interesting. Yeah, that that fuel in orbit, that just water in general. So we use the water for um, for, for radiation shielding, for fuel, for uh, life support systems. Uh, that water is just extremely useful. The the metals, if you, it's hard to necessarily compare them to a value on Earth as a reason to bring them on Earth because they'd still actually always be more valuable in space. And so the 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 iron and nickel and the things that you're going to get the most of are still always going to be cheaper to um, uh, to mine here on Earth. The things that you get over the longer term, if you produce enough, things like platinum, you know, you could eventually start to bring some of that back. But that's uh, so far down the line of um, of uh, potential uses. Uh, ultimately, 99% of everything you're going to get is still going to be worth way more in space, in, in location. So it's, you know, if you, it's like looking at um, the number of uh, uh, the, the, the value of a, of a forest if you're if you're if, if, if that forest is near a construction site then that then that lumber is is worth more where it is and uh you know at this point you know we have uh we have lots of uh, uh minerals here on earth and and, and metals and uh, and they're not that that con- uh, comparatively that difficult to get to so uh in orbit is always going to be the, the the highest value for for anything that you can can manufacture refine and produce up to, up and from from an asteroid especially if you're the first gas station 
happen when the cars start coming. Everyone has to stop. Exactly, and 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 that fuel in in you know in, in a lot of uh, in potentially an unlimited value once the infrastructure is in place, at unlimited quantities. I, I, there's just so much out there that uh, if you if you can bring the the, the fuel part of the transportation issue uh, down, so that every every uh, vehicle that leaves Earth only has to bring enough uh, fuel just to get to the gas station. Uh, then from there, I mean, they can get anywhere in the solar system for uh, you know for relatively cheap compared to if they were to have had to have brought that out of the gravity well of Earth. So you're a creative and an artist, and one of the things I've found both through interviews and through just general thought processes is that if you look in the past and you looked at today, uh, quite a few of the technologists, quite a few of the inventions and innovations have been inspired by sci-fi. Authors that design something, they write something that's impossible at the time that suddenly inspires creation and creativity. Is that more or less how you got involved, how you go about thinking about deep space, about habitats, about asteroid mining, etc.? You create things that are seemingly not viable today, but inspire the way that they will be done in the future? Yeah, I, I, I try to I do a mental amount of research into the images that I create because I want them to be as, as possible as possible. If they look science fiction, like you've kind of just made a, a, a fake a pretend gravity or a, if, you've, if you've really disregarded any of the you know, laws of uh, physics or engineering, then the, the average viewer can kind of see that. If they, if they look at it as science fiction, in a way, part of the brain just kind of writes it off as, as fantasy. You might as well have you know, dragons and elves in there. Uh, and so they don't really necessarily take it seriously. But if it's if it is based on sound uh, science and engineering, then it, it absolutely uh, it's a, a more believable path in your brain, and and it engages the viewer a lot more. If they if they look at the image and they think this looks like it like it could be real, and they believe that it could be real based on the image, it doesn't. There's nothing in there that looks like it couldn't happen. Then in a way, you can kind of get to second base on the whole conversation of of space exploration, you don't necessarily have to talk to them and convince them that it could happen because we've already just done that in the image. They, they're already kind of on board. Now you can just start to talk about the the how and the why, which is um, you know a very interesting part of the conversation that really moves the whole the whole thing forward. It really it's provoking provoking the future. And what what artists are do do, and I, I look at a lot of the, the the space settlement art that came um, that NASA commissioned back in the seventies of uh, guys like Don Davis, and I mean that it was so inspiring and and that's really those are some of the things that really inspired me to ultimately do what I do uh, now is that I saw the the value in creating an image that a person could just stare at and get lost in and imagine themselves there imagine themselves walking around picking up rocks and hearing the trees they're they're they're, they're realistic enough that you can believe that they're possible but they are fantastical in in the concept that they're describing so it looks like it's you know perhaps just a, a regular park and there's a family sitting on a on a picnic blanket and they're they're having some sandwiches and and there's butterflies and there's flowers and you look in the background and 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 the the horizon slopes up because uh, you're inside a giant rotating space settlement a giant structure uh, completely uh, human built or robot built and and so you you kind of grab them when they when they can imagine imagine the the, the feeling of the grass and and the sound of the wind in the in the leaves and and the trees and and it, and it's it's something they can relate to, and then there's this expanse to the to the concept that just tantalizes and forces forces the the viewer to to engage and to and and to create fill in the blanks in their mind. How did how did we even get there? What do you do? What happens when you when you walk or when you run? Where do these people live? And what are they? What, what are their jobs? What do they do for fun? What, what's their recreation? And 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 the the ability for these these types of images to inspire uh, the people who could fill in all those blanks. What do those people do for jobs? What are those jobs? How was this place actually built? Uh, a young kid going into uh, robotics sees an image like that and thinks, what 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 kind of infrastructure would be required to basically autonomously uh, build a structure like that if you had inputs of X and Y? And, and a structural engineer uh, thinks, I mean, what would the material properties have to be in order to be able to support this type of structure? And someone in uh, in agriculture and, and biology are thinking about uh, the Physiology of plants in a in an environment that isn't necessarily a full gravity, uh, and how do we how do we grow in confined spaces? 
and create the most amount of calories per uh, per input of energy and nutrient and water. And, and all of these people could have been inspired by this one image created by one artist who just you know, spent time creating the opportunity for the viewer to engage. And so I've always been, when I was, even when I was really, really young, I've always been very uh, inspired by, by art. Uh, I had a lot of relatives who were uh, painters and artists. Um, my dad, a draftsman, he sketched a lot. Uh, and so even, even as a very young kid, I understood there was this, there was a skill of a person uh, that, that some people had or developed to be able to convey things that are in their own mind's eye, in their own imagination, can convey it on a piece of paper, on a canvas for other people to see. And I, and I understood that this, I understood the value in that skill very, very young, because even just yeah, having a conversation with someone and, and you know, my uncle whips out a, a pencil or a, uh, and starts dabbling on a piece of paper. And just like that, he's conveyed the image of what we're discussing and talking about right there, right in front of us. And so if we were trying to uh, communicate a three-dimensional object just through words, the chances that we're both talking about the same thing might not be that high. But because you could just quickly draw it, then, then instantly we both understand completely what we're talking about. The whole conversation is, is accelerated forward because of the ability of one person to really clearly communicate uh, that concept. And I mean, the, the arts in general, whether it's a musician able to convey the, the, the catchy tune in, in her head or a writer who's able to eloquently tell the story that has been mulling uh, in their brain for, for years, being able to communicate that, uh, it, you know, if, if art is you know, a lot of definitions of art and just being able to, you know, communicate an idea, beautiful or not, and with skill that, that can, can capture a viewer uh, is, I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic and useful and it's, and it's valuable. And, um, and, and, and knowing from a young age that that was a value that no matter how much time I spent on it, the increase in skill would always at some point help me in the usefulness of what it was I produced. There's nothing more valuable than expanding the minds of others. That's what we're trying to do with the podcast. And this will seem like a strange transition, but you had a stroke and it changed the way you thought about and experienced the world. I wanted to jump into that and talk a little bit more. Uh, yeah. So, so a lot of the work that I did, um, I, I had been working for uh, uh, over a decade as um, doing architectural and engineering visualization. And uh, but the the real art of what I did had always been something that I did in in my my own my own home and my sketchbooks and on my computer. And it was always very much for me. And I didn't uh, I didn't need to really show anyone my sketchbooks for them to have any value. It didn't increase the value to me if someone else saw it because the entire the fulfillment of drawing that image in the first place was for me. I enjoyed it. I got a great time. I loved it. That's it. Uh, sketchbook can go on the shelf. Uh, and in my evenings and weekends, I would I would quickly rush home so I could get back to designing, um, you know, like a, a place that we could live on on Mars or a robot. And, and But these evenings and weekends things were always things that I kind of just kept to myself. And the stuff that were on the computer, I kept them on my computer and no one really saw them. Uh, and then 2011, I had a stroke and I had momentarily lost the ability to um, walk and talk and just communicate at all. And it absolutely changed my perspective drastically. Uh, everything that I had been looking forward to, where I had, uh, I'd, I'd draw something, you know, a place that we could live on Mars, because I thought, I mean, it's going to be really cool when we get there. And this is kind of a preview of, you know, what we're going to see in 30 years. And, and so um, I'm, I'm looking forward to 30 years from now when we actually get to see it in real life. And it was kind of the mindset when I created these images, is I was just previewing them for myself for something that eventually we're all going to see. But after the stroke, because we don't necessarily know what caused it, and it had a lot of tests. And uh, so the underlying condition that caused the stroke, if we if we can't identify it, then we don't know that it's no longer still there. And so in the especially the very first couple of days and weeks and months, it was really uh, weighed heavily on me that the potential of tomorrow, of, of my own tomorrow, was extremely limited, and I couldn't I couldn't rely on it. There is uh, no way that I knew I was going to see next weekend or next week or next Christmas or next year. Uh, and so these things that I had been really excited to see in my lifetime, the things that I thought, oh, I can't wait to see that, all of a sudden it changed to I can't wait. And so so what I had to do is is I mean if I wanted to see what a five thousand person orbital rotating settlement would look like, a place with trees and forests and gardens. I couldn't wait for someone else to show it. I had to, if I wanted to see that in my lifetime, I'm going to have to create it myself and, and see what it at least could look like. 
And all the images I do, you know, in all likelihood, it's not going to look like this when it happens, but it could. And I thought, so on one hand, I realized I have to start just being less hobbyish about how I create these images. I had to be a lot more proactive. I had to, I had to act like I had more deadlines because before it was like, I'll do a little bit here and I'll do a little bit there. But now I started to say, I mean, if I have, if, if I'm alive for another month, what can I do in a month? And, and for the first couple of months, it was a lot of just, you know, <laughs> hugging friends and family and saying, I love you a lot more. But I still wanted to be productive in the things that really gave me an immense amount of fulfillment. And that is the, the art and design of things that potentially, you know, no one else at the time was, was, was focusing on in the specific areas that I was focusing on. So I thought, I mean, I can, I can, I can potentially move the needle if I focus in these areas and publish. So as opposed to just leaving them, uh, creating these images just for myself, if I, if I can publish them so that other people can see them, then they can be used in these conversations and, uh, People who are advocates of space, people who are doing research and how we could do, uh, how we can get there, what we do when we got there. I, I would read a lot of things like the NASA white papers and and just research that people were doing. And there's a lot of charts and graphs and equations, but not a lot of images actually show what these things could be used for. And I thought there's certainly um, a lot of potential for collaborations between these people and myself, where there's no doubt that you know I created a couple images that this particular person could really use in the presentation, and it makes their presentation just a little bit more useful and efficient and productive if the if the viewer of their presentation now has something that they can they can recall something they can rely on you know for if we're talking about automated agriculture actually seeing a picture of a robot walking through a garden and there's you know potentially uh, natural pollinators like butterflies or bees or hummingbirds uh, and there's 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 fish in the corner and there's uh, different kinds of uh, citrus trees and you know perhaps we can make the ex- entire experience that much more richer, which ultimately just increases the the, the value in there. I become like a potentially a, a a small little multiplier to their potential research and the overall message. Ultimately, yep. You had a train. Go ahead. Pardon me. Well, I, so I started. I started publishing. Um, I, I started my website, spacehabs.com, and very shortly after I started actually posting these things online, I started getting a lot of phone calls um, and emails and from from publishers and from researchers uh, and people who just wanted to use the images to help convey their own message. And I realized very quickly that there uh, the, the value that I'm getting and the types of people who are finding this useful. And these are you know people who are world class in their field and getting calls from I mean astronauts and the the usefulness was obvious was obvious to me very quickly as soon as I started to I, I guess like when I found uh, I like a singer had always sung in the shower suddenly I started singing out in the open and the voice was very useful and it was and it was it was liberating for me it was it was motivating and it and it increased uh, my fulfillment in what I was doing um, just exponentially I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, a startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full-service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com syndicate. How do you think average individuals can do this? You had a life or death transformational experience, which made you have to live in the now and try to provoke a better future. How do how does you or I or someone else get into that state of mind? You've been doing this now for seven years, and you're still here. What do you do? Yeah, well, it's it, 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 it's different for everyone. And some people, uh, for some people, just having um, a friend or a family member who had uh, gone through something like this. I mean, every every single day you can watch the news and have a reminder that um, there's no guarantee of tomorrow, 
there there's tragic things happening to people every single day uh, around the world. So, but but it's 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 hard to for, it's hard for it to be as personal as if it is personal. And I mean, I I'm I'm lucky that I had found something at a very young age that was useful and gave me gave me fulfillment just in the 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 evolution of my own skills in this area were were very uh, just made me happy. And so I just kept progressing and progressing. Uh, and when I found something very specific that I thought this is what I'm going to apply it to. Every every image I, I create, I know in, in one way or another is, is potentially potentially useful. Um, and I know there's uh, being in this being in this industry and the people that I talk to, I, I talk with lots of people who who know what they do is is is, is useful. I, I I I'm in a bunch of different email groups, and in one group there's just a whole bunch of guys who who almost dedicated their life into studying the potential of uh, closed system agriculture and life support and. And I mean, these guys, no one, no one would bump into them on the street and, and know who they are. And, and yet, if they if they understood the potential value of what these people are working on, you know, they, they should be rock stars. I, I, I've met so many people who who have the potential, have the potential to be rock stars in our own in our own evolution in in in, in human progress. Uh, and yet, no one would probably know their name, even if what they come up with does change how we do things, their names would probably be, you know, their names wouldn't necessarily uh, be known, but they find this value in what they do and this passion in what they do because they know it's useful. And and so, I mean, everyone has to find their thing that, that is useful to them and is uh, and gives them their fulfillment. And it's not, doesn't have to be uh, world changing. It could be, it could be community changing. It could be family changing. It could be uh, just life changing for yourself, uh, and, and you know, and I, I know that there's there's a lot of people who don't necessarily find what it is that truly is their is is their is their you know space station or or song or sculpture or or whatever it is the, the, the their particular medium and outlet and and you know that's that's just I mean I, I wish I knew. Uh, I wish I knew how to help people find their thing, and, and maybe maybe some people just don't have a thing. Um, I, I think I think everyone does, and some people are lucky enough to find it, and and you know some people some people don't. And, and I, I, I'm, all I can say is I've 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 found mine, and it's uh, you know it's it's between work that I do and, and my family. I have like two giant beacons of light in my life, uh, things that make me excited to get out of bed every single every single day, every Every day is absolutely a gift, and and not just in what I can do in that day, but the fact that the day exists at all um, is something that I just I really don't I really don't take for for granted. And you know, it, I I was I was absolutely I'm I'm very lucky that I had um, I had a stroke that at the end of it, after four days, I walked out of the hospital under my own power, was able to carry on a conversation. I had coordination issues. I kept missing words when I'd have a conversation when I would talk, uh, and that was uh, that was a real mental block for me for. For many years, but I was but I was lucky that I walked out of the hospital under my own power and could carry on a conversation because a lot of people who have stroke don't don't aren't that lucky. So I can appreciate the the luck that that I've gotten the the opportunity that I've gotten. So it was a a, a near death experience without dying, and so all the all the good parts without the bad parts. And yeah, I mean, I mean, my, my life will, will never be the same from from that point on. Um, and, you know, it's it's a different type of uh, it's my passion is different than it, it ever was um, before. And, you know, and even now, I, I still you know, when I'm when I'm talking, I still miss words every once in a while. And I, uh, I, I stammer and I, and I try to think about and I sometimes I get really fixated because I'm angry that I don't catch a certain word. And, and I know it's right there. I, I you know, I might have just said it. And, and it's just it's just gone. It's like, you know, someone just ripped a page out of the thesaurus and or dictionary, and 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 it's and it's frustrating the, the, that communication part. But I was never a great orator, orator anyway, uh, and so that communication, the verbal communication, having lost a bit of that, ultimately doesn't change my life. The the ability to communicate visually never changed. I got on my computer and was able to do everything that I had done before. I pulled up a you know I had a sketchbook and a pencil, and I could still do the thing. And um, 
you know, it, it affected my ability to uh, golf and play basketball, but ultimately draw and create didn't change it at all. So, you know, I really got, I got lucky that I, I, I got the good things without the bad things. You know, it was a, it was a close call and, and, you know, life will never be the same after that. And you clearly found your mission. That's what everyone's looking for. And that's a big part of the reason I wanted to bring up that story. Speaking of missions, the Mars One mission, you designed some of the, some of the concepts for the space hubs, et cetera. I want to dive into that now in terms of what it looks like living off planet. Are you going to be on the first few trips to Mars? Is that your dream? Do you want to live somewhere else? Are you happy with just being a designer? Uh, well, I, when I had uh, first first started drawing these things and first designing what it would look like to be on Mars, it was very much that I would I would want to have been there. My uh, my reality simulations of these places was was like a, a placeholder until I could see it for real. At this point, I know that there'd be a zero chance, um, even if there was even if there was a mission leaving, you know, uh, within a couple of years, there's a zero chance that I would ever go because of <laughs> pre-existing conditions. I guarantee you, they can find a lot of better candidates than me to actually go. But I I would I would love to go. That had always been a, the walking through the hallways, uh, you know, a, a tenth gravity on the moon or or uh, you know, 30, 40% on, on, on Mars, um, walking over uh, hills that have never been walked over. And I, I've always been, I've always been an explorer. Even as a kid, I just love just all the different places that we, we, my family lived. We always lived fairly close to the edge of town. So I was always able to just walk out the door and just head out into um, bush or tundra or forest or uh, hills and just explore and see things that most people didn't see, even people who lived in the same area. You know, they didn't walk out here and, and you know, I could I could be out for hours and hours exploring and not see another person, even though you know we're only 15 minute walk from from a town or a city. So I knew I was seeing seeing things that a lot of people didn't see, and that was very exciting for me. You know, what's around this next corner and what's up the stream and 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 being able to do that on Mars would be just I mean that would be incredible. Uh, so when the the founders of the Mars One group contacted me and told me about what it is they're looking to do, uh, it, it really it captured my imagination. One thing I had been thinking about for a long time was about the the cost of a Mars mission and if the if the intent is for exploration and discovery then then having a return mission absolutely makes sense if the intent is is settlement and to actually live there then all the costs associated and the risks associated with a return trip uh, can be all bundled into just sending more supplies to stay there in the first place so so what Mars one had said is is it is a one-way trip because the intention is to stay uh, and I and I really uh, I really like that and whether or not whether or not it's feasible, I thought, um, what a great what a great carrot to dangle in front of just society. I mean, the the conversation that started because of what Mars One proposed. Uh, there was I'd be getting emails from science classes around the world. Um, I mean, in, in Czechoslovakia and, and Japan and and Korea and across the states and uh, and, and and I mean, it, people were just people were just fascinated at the conversation uh, and just the discussion of of what could happen, whether or not it was whether or not it was possible. Uh, and and the great thing is that you'd have the, the the naysayers were actually quite productive because they would point out all the different things that we needed to know before we actually could even attempt a mission like that, which, I mean, that's kind of the idea. That's kind of the point. Like, let's go ahead and talk about all the things we need to do before we do a mission like that. And obviously, you know, we wouldn't do it before we had those things. And, and if it takes 10 years or 20 years or 40 years, all the things that have been raised as issues that need to be solved, those issues, I mean, we have a great big list. And and that list is is for is for everyone. It's if, if the Chinese want to send someone, if the Russians want to send people, if NASA's going to do it, or if it's, or if it's a, a, a worldwide approach or if, it's, or if it's Elon Musk and um, SpaceX, uh, regardless of who is going to Mars, there are certain things that absolutely have to be figured out, understood, solved. And and the sooner we get that conversation started, the better. And so what I really liked about Mars One is is how effective it was at actually getting that conversation started and people just mulling about the idea of a one-way trip and the, the ramifications and the, the intention of a one-way trip. It's not just about exploration. Like a one-way trip is not just about exploration, it is it is about living there, and that is that's an entirely different conversation that wasn't really being had up until then. So, um, so I'm I'm very happy that I was able to uh, contribute some images that helped to uh, stoke that particular conversation. Speaking of the all important issues, what are some of the issues, especially the ones that would not be as obvious? Obviously, you can't breathe the air, etc. But what are some of the other issues that people may not think about 
that would be limiting for humanity's ability to live on Mars and set up a, a colony? Well, the uh, starting right from uh, lifting off enough mass from Earth, I mean, it, it, there's there's really just it's a, it's a huge list of getting the the mass from Earth uh, on its way there. Uh, how how are people how are people going to handle that trip, and what's the best way for them to handle that trip? Do we do we bother? creating some kind of small microgravity that uh, keeps their bones and joints and, and density, bone density and muscle mass up until they get there. Uh, and then when we do get to Mars, the entry, descent, landing problem there is, is a lot different than it is landing on Earth. Is, is We've got a, a thick atmosphere, which we can use for uh, for a huge amount of aerobraking, and smaller smaller objects going to Mars. Uh, we, we've sent quite a few rovers, and we've had many different ways of getting them onto the surface. And, and the smaller one, you know, we, we could even just uh, you know put them in a, a giant inflatable bag and just bounce them along the surface until they came to rest, and then and then uh, draw in the bag, and and the rover can can leave. And you know, there's there's things that work for small packages that don't work for really big packages. And so just getting a massive payload of of 30 tons or or 50 tons onto the surface of Mars is in itself, you know, an engineering feat, which if Elon Musk is successful, uh, and I mean, I fingers crossed for him, uh, I think he is he is the biggest envelope pusher uh, there is in our in our society right now. Uh, the envelopes he's pushing very, very big. Uh, he could potentially, you know, he's saying maybe 100, 100 tons to the surface of Mars and where you've had all these people for people um, you know, on the, the, the Mars Society, the Mars Foundation and, and all these different uh, thought groups of, of people thinking about what we could do on Mars, you know, if we could just get 10 tons here and maybe it's two 10-ton packages or two 10-ton packages. And, and now all of a sudden, um, you know, we've been thinking about in terms of building with a wheelbarrow and Elon Musk announced he's going to back up a great big semi big rig plop down what we thought it would take you know 50 launches and if his if his BFR can can deliver the type of payload that he's suggesting that it could you know it's a, it's a complete game changer all the potential issues kind of have this uh, trickle down effect from the amount of quantity and, and volume and mass that we can get on the surface all the all the problems become bigger problems on, on that limitation. I got some dogs and uh, there are sometimes other dogs across the street and my dog's got to let me know that there's dogs out there. So Very you know. important. And so if, if you're if you're trying to figure out how we can feed, you know, a dozen people or a hundred people and the, the food we based on the food we can bring with us, and that's either, you know, the, the mass of food that we can bring with us or the mass of equipment that we can use, that we can bring with us in order to grow our own food. When you you can increase the total uh, mass that we can bring, all those all those problems become you know a little easier. You know if if, if we're if, if you if your carbon dioxide scrubber has to work 100% of the time, then that cost is going to go up. But if we can bring a lot more mass, then maybe we can bring two or three or four carbon dioxide scrubbers. In which case, the cost of each of them, the cost of having to be 100% reliable, uh, can come down. If if either of those, the difference between 95% reliable and 100% reliable is actually a really big difference. So if we had two at 95% reliable, we're still we could still potentially cut costs. And that kind of it, that kind of goes across the board in, in water filtration systems and in the materials used for habitat for uh, even just the, the material used for, for airlocks or for vehicles, the equipment that we can bring with us for uh, for production, whether if we're going to start getting resources from the uh, from the soil itself, the the loaders and the uh, the shakers and the movers, uh, all of, all of those things become easier if we can get a larger volume and and mass to the surface. What's a hundred? So, what's a hundred tons get you from a colony size? Just roughly, how many? How many people? How how large? Well, it um it it, it depends on if you're thinking about uh, if it's going to be for uh, stay or if it's a hundred tons for the people who arrived and they're going to be there for eighteen months and head back or or, or it, let's stay. And so that, that actual number, I don't really know what the uh, what you'd actually get for a hundred tons, uh, but it's you know it's, it's certainly a lot easier to to make those calculations. You have a lot more. Uh, you you can have larger gray areas than if you're only delivering. 10 ton payloads. Yeah, the the quantity has a, a quality all its own. As uh yeah. as we grow and go, how do you think about uh, I, what I was thinking about a bit earlier is your designs. A big part of what you're doing and why it's important is it's getting people into that frame of mind of thinking differently and thinking bigger and thinking off planet. How do you think about VR and other technologies in terms of how they could relate to the work you're doing and how they could further the mission? Yeah, um 
so I started really with 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 crayons and and pencil crayons and pencil and marker and and I eventually got into watercolor and uh, and pastels and I started using the computer uh, in my you know early twenties to to generate uh, wireframes that I could uh, draw perspectives from and and so I was always trying to find a new technique to portray whatever it is I was I was uh, trying to visualize uh, and and in the last couple of years I've been working with even just animations where where I'd previously just done a still you know an anim- if, if a picture is worth a thousand words an animation could be worth a thousand pictures and and that still kind of only gets you to a certain point but now with things like the the vibe and the and the oculus being able to uh, and, and full real uh, uh, convincing virtual reality to be able to get inside these areas and that's what I've been working on the last couple of months is trying to essentially translate the models and designs that I've been working on into VR so that you can put on your goggles and your handsets and and walk around and pick things up and it's uh and it's it's, it's exhilarating it's absolutely exhilarating the the ability to see these spaces uh, and I'm hoping, you know, within the next couple of months to really start to be able to uh, release some of these. Uh, at this point, they're just experiences. They're just places that you can walk around. Uh, but I have, uh, you know, Mars, a small little uh, Mars settlement with a with a big greenhouse. And you can, you know, move the, 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 the strawberries around. You can literally pick them up. And, and with the, uh, the the Oculus uh, handsets, you can you can pick up the strawberries and move them around. And um, you can put plant potatoes. And uh, and that really that that really changes the experience, the the interactivity and the 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 full the full spectrum visuals were even your the full periphery of your of your eyes are 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 you know, encapsulated within this space and being able to just move your head left or right and up and down to be able to explore is it, it, it's it's really neat I'm I'm very excited with um, with the things that I'm, I'm I'm working on now and I very much look forward to uh, being able to uh, start publishing publishing these because I think they're going to be very useful and I'm still trying to think of what what the ultimate outlet is it is it a simulation is it the type of game is it um, is it is it enough just as a simulation if if someone can just walk around this place and 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 treat it like it uh, like it exists you can you can get into the rover and drive it you can um, walk through the airlock uh, is is that enough does it have to have some kind of a a game element I would like to, I would like it to be linked with another project that I'm working on it's a, it's called CMOC and it's a it's a it's a program that will simulate quantifiably the inputs and outputs from uh, life support systems and agriculture within a closed system, uh, and it's and it's scalable. So you could say you are planting these types of plants. You have these types of inputs. It will tell you over time your levels of oxygen, carbon dioxide, based on these many occupants. It'll give you a total amount of calories out per person. And what I would like to do is, is link that with the um, these virtual reality simulations, so that you can potentially get some real time feedback while experiencing this place. And and I'm doing that both for the for the Mars habitats and the the larger um, like 250 meter radius uh, cylinders that I've been working on for uh, for for settlements. I think being able to experience in VR is is really it's it's the next step in engaging the audience, and I'm very excited with uh with where it's going. And the the added little things of you know uh, three dimensional sound as you walk by something, you hear the you hear the, the machine rumbling or the leaves rustling or you know a bird chirping, and uh, that that immersion really makes a, a big difference. It's very exciting. I think the further away the experience is from the reality, the less you need to add to it. If you're doing something that's a general day-to-day, you might need to gamify it. But as it is something exploring Mars, exploring another planet, another habitat, I got to think that that's so far away from the norm that for most people, that experience would trump anything else with or without additions. Yeah. Yeah. I would tend to think so. I, I, I think so. I mean, it's certainly enough for me. And and, I'm, and, and you get to, a, sometimes as, as an artist, you get so uh, stuck inside your own head and you think, I mean, I, I love this so much. What if nobody else really cares <laughs> and and I imagine artists across the spectrum in different mediums all all think this you know uh, 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 someone who's been writing a song and laboring over the words and the the pitch and the the and and they think I mean what if nobody else thinks a song is as, as fun as I do or or you know or a painting or I mean these things I do because they give me I, I just I mean I I love them I, I could be in these spots for hours and hours and, and I really immerse myself and before I used technology it was even just through I mean meditation where uh, you could really imagine these places before you create them you could walk around you could, and in and, and, you know meditation was the was the first VR and you know it did a great job for for millennia but now we can do it VR artificially for people who aren't as good at meditation and and being able to share that experience I really think it's you know it is, it is really neat and I, I 
think I think once I have the once I get it to a point where I feel like I can you know really start showing it to people, it would be interesting to to hear the feedback and 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 hear uh, see what potentially the effect is of it. Silicon Valley has the saying "fuck it, ship it." It's never going to be ready, and if you wait until it is, then you've probably waited too long. So this is our personal yeah. challenge: calling you out, Brian. Get it out there and see what people think. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Fuck it. Ship it. <laughs> what what com- what what space focused companies or areas are you most excited about outside of of course deep space industries? Uh, the the things that are making the the moving the needle the most is is absolutely launch costs uh, and, and being able to just watch the steady progress of uh, of like a SpaceX where the um, the capabilities and the turnaround time and the um, consistency of the landings and the reusability you know every every single there it's, it's history in the making every every launch is just a, an, a new page to the to the history books and I that is and it's so important to every other industry whether it's whether it's satellites and or settlement or exploration those launch costs are just that is the the, the greatest story in, in in space right now it'd be it'd be exciting to get really um I'd be happy to be way more excited about like the uh, James Webb uh, Space Telescope if you know if I if I had a a high degree of certainty that it was you know ever going to get launched. Uh, it it seems like it's always just you know it's just a little it just being dragged it, when it when it launches it's going to be absolutely spectacular. It's going to change the way we look at, uh, at at the universe and you know that would be incredible. But for 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 human settlement, uh, even uh, one thing that I, I pay a lot of attention to is just is automated agriculture because that's that's something that really has the the ability to to affect people's lives no matter where they live whether it's on on Mars or the moon or or in you know Scandinavia or or Florida or you know the, the Arctic of, of Canada no matter no matter where you live automated agriculture can really change our lives and I, I find that to be very very interesting I, and I probably spend a, a disproportionate amount of my time imagining how these people are going to feed themselves regardless of where they go because it's it's probably one of the most versatile technologies and development of, of anything related to space for for even those people who will never ever go to space. Yeah, we'll have major implications here as well as we start to have more and more automation replacing the need for manual backbreaking human labor. Mm-hmm. What what technologies are you most excited about today outside of space and outside of what your day to day is? In a, in a way, my I mean, my my day to day tries to you know, encompass so much, but I think what we're doing with uh, 3D printing and where that's uh, where that could end up, where the the potential of having being able to just order a certain amount of mass of any type of material and then repurpose that with your own home 3D printer into anything is 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 pretty incredible. When you look at the a trillion dollar company like Amazon, whose purpose is is you know, a, a huge part of what Amazon does is deliver uh, cheap plastic pieces of anything to straight to your door. Uh, and there's not necessarily a lot in a lot of the things that are ordered. They really are, you know, just a, a plastic of some sort, whether it be a toy or a tool or, and, and so much of that could literally just be produced in your own home um, if, you, if you had the material. I have a 3D printer that I use to, uh, I'll, I'll create custom uh, like Lego pieces that, uh, that, you know, make more versatile little robots and, and and so my my son who's three years old is going to grow up understanding that you know anything that you really want you you can kind of you can kind of have this you can you can create it you can design it you know if you have an image in your mind we can 3d model it you can print it out and you can utilize it so so if there's if there's a toy or a tool that you like it's at your fingertips you might just have to wait four or five or six hours and that that power uh, and that and that, I think that's incredibly empowering when when people understand the potential of that and, and it's a way it's um, we have this this information age where kids grow growing up now will never know a time where they don't have all the published knowledge of humankind at their fingertips on an iPad, which is drastically different than what we grew up with. Where um, you know you'd you'd find there's something you want to know. There's you know two books written on the subject, and you hope that the library you go to happens to have that book. And if not, you really don't have any uh, anything else you can possibly do. There's you know it's hard to really find the information you're looking for. And now you have a question. It's always it's at your fingertips. The answers are potentially right at your fingertips. And that's for knowledge, but for physical tools and um, household objects and 
uh, things that you could utilize in other ways, that's right on the horizon. And in some ways, it's already here in, in, in the power of 3D printing. I find that just, that is, that's really exciting. Uh, and artificial intelligence is is interesting in a in a, in a way that it, it's one of those things where I understand there's so much I don't, I can't comprehend about the ramifications that it's, it's like trying to explain the usefulness of the internet to someone in 1970. We, we can start to wrap our heads around what AI is going to do for us, but it'll have ramifications that we really can't possibly imagine right now. We just it'll 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 affect parts of our lives that we won't know until the day it happens. Yeah, I completely agree with both of those. With the 3D printing, it is a lot like the chicken and the egg problem that you have with getting to space. It's too expensive because not enough people are using it and it's not ubiquitous enough as it becomes more and more prevalent. Suddenly you start to replace world supply chains and things get interesting. And then with AI, mm-hmm. AI will be transformational. Whether it will be good or bad is very hard to tell. And we won't really know for a lot of use cases until we get much closer and things just start to take off. It's uh And it'll be, yeah. it'll probably be good and bad in, in 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 at the same time for the same reasons in some ways. So you look at something like social media as, as a ramification of 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 what um of how the internet is, is being utilized and and social media is is both good and very bad. Um, the ability to uh, create this this larger collective mind of people from around the world uh, has huge potential, and and it could be you know very interesting. A lot of the, the groups, the email groups that I that I work with, and different uh, electronic groups essentially were were scattered around the world. And if it wasn't for the internet, we really couldn't do what it is what it is we do. And and the ability for us to correspond and and work with each other. You if you were you know an expert in your field 30 years ago, in order to have a really good collaboration, you know, in all likelihood, you'd have to live on the same block or the same city as someone who was also an expert, and then you could collaborate. It was it was a lot more difficult to, and, and, and kind of a painful process to just write a letter to someone. And, you know, you have a two-week, three-week turnaround time. Being able to interact in real time is extremely powerful. Uh, and uh, if, if, if it's being used for good, and if it's being used for bad, we've seen how misinformation can be spread so quickly and rapidly, like a like an intellectual virus, and 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 I mean things like that. Using you know artificial intelligence will have there will be things that we'll be able to do with artificial intelligence with, that'll change the way we do things, and and it'll be hugely beneficial to us. And the exact same process will also find a way, or people will find a way to misuse it, and and we won't have and you know in some cases it'll take us decades to understand how to not be affected by that or how to mitigate those those circumstances you know in the same way we're, we're right now trying to deal with how do we deal with um, how do we do a social media uh, contact amongst children you know we didn't have to, a generation ago that wasn't a conversation that existed at all and now we have to have this conversation how how is this how is this handled and how is it good for people or bad for people and uh, and you know we're going to have these same uh, conversations with regarding artificial intelligence and a lot of the conversations will be retroactively we'll be we'll be talking about what should we have done with this uh, now that it's already out of the bag how do we mitigate the effects of what's already happening and that's 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 kind of spooky because the how connected the world is you know if something goes wrong locally you know it's a local problem if you if you if you build a bridge and the bridge doesn't work well you know there's potentially um, fatal consequences for up to maybe a couple dozen people who cross the bridge if something affects and can touch the supply chains and infrastructure of billions and billions of people then if something goes wrong the possibility for it to go really wrong is is pretty spooky and you know there there's a lot of people talking about how 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 good artificial intelligence will be for us and there are people, I mean, like like Elon Musk, who who says, you know, there are a lot of unknowns and potential a- extreme dangers, and you know, and I would certainly be a little bit in both camps that it, it it can do incredible things for us, but to disregard what it could do that isn't good for us, you know, it, and it's it's hard to uh, understand the precautions that we should take without understanding what the ramifications will be. So it's just a gigantic unknown that um, you know it, it's hard to plan for. It's a huge question mark on our future. It is, and I wish that we had another half an hour an hour to talk about it. I got another one coming up soon. So I last question for you, Brian. This has been super fun. This has been super valuable. If you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, it can be anything. What would it be and why? Uh, well, drawing from my own experience, if you can find something in your life that you feel that that you feel can change the life of someone else for the better, and and find motivation from that, and uh, you know, and it's it, it sounds very, I mean, <laughs> kumbaya, and let's all hold hands. But you know, it, 
it's something that is bigger than yourself. And you won't necessarily know it until you see it and, or until you do it. It's something that you do that you think helps helps other people in any way and find fulfillment from that. You know, and I, I just, I, I hope, I, I hope if you don't find that, I just hope you always keep searching. Always search for something. Search for the thing that, that makes you happy by making, climb on climb on the backs of those giants and, and build, help build, you know, what we're doing and, and, and our future and, 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 and maybe it could be locally, maybe it could be individually, you know, you add one brick to this castle and the castle gets bigger. And, uh, and, and, I, and I wish I was uh, as good with words as I was with images. I feel like I'm talking with, with eight tongues and all of them are, are left. And, uh, um, but I, 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 hope, I hope people just always keep searching for what it is that's their thing. I found mine and, you know, I wish everyone could feel uh, the way I do when I sit down to my work or my sketchbook and you found your thing. And uh, yeah, that's, that's all. That's all. You definitely found your mission. Where's the best place for people to find you online, Brian? Check out your drawings and steal some of your thousand words. I, uh, I, I, I post, I, I try to post regularly on uh, my, my Facebook. It's facebook.com slash space Habs. I update my, uh, my Twitter once in a while, which is um, at space Habs. Uh, and my website is, is probably the best place is uh, spacehabs.com. And, um, and I, I try to uh, put a variety of finished images and some works in progress in there. Uh, and I'm hoping to uh, get more into uh, works of progress because for every you know, one polished image I post, I probably have a hundred uh, unfinished works in progress that are still pretty interesting, but I just, you know, I, I don't, I don't share those. So I, I'm hoping to share more in the future. Guys, the, the images are phenomenal. If you're interested in space, it definitely makes you think outside the box. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on today, Brian. Thank you very much, Matt. Awesome. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.